I actually retitled this sermon. It didn't get in the late bulletin because we'd already printed it. But I, I titled it Failing Jesus. Because we, we all struggle with failure. I'll give you a perfect example. This morning I was supposed to mention these two inserts in your bulletin and I forgot to do that. So I'll take a moment and do that now. One of them is about a potluck we're having in a couple of weeks. We'd love to have you a part of that. You can see that. And the other one's about the Easter breakfast Sunday morning. And uh, then it's a fundraiser for the youth group. And so any contributions you can make with food or funds would be greatly appreciated. And we laugh at that. But the reality is we all know all of us, all of us fail. We all make mistakes. We, you know, we forget something on an exam or we don't show up when we're supposed to. Or we ignore someone who needs us. We all struggle with failure. It's a part of our lives. It's the struggle of being human. And some of those failures are small, insignificant. We don't think about them again for a long time. Some of them are deep. Some of the failures of our lives keep us awake at night. They nag at us during the day. We wrestle with them. Some of those failures are recent. Some of them are long past. But they're there. I think that's one of the reasons why it's not that difficult for us to relate to Peter. Peter fails Jesus. It's not for trying. You have to love Peter's passion for Jesus. I mean, the guy is passionate about Jesus. I mean, he, he's the first voice to say, I'll do it, Jesus. He's the first one to say, I'll, I'll take that on. He's the first witness of who Jesus is. He, he is always the one ready to follow Jesus. He is passionate and excited and vibrant about Jesus. It, it, makes, it reminds me of some first-year college students. You go to activities fair and all the clubs and organizations out there, there's, I don't know, 30, 40 of them were there as a church and, and everyone's, you know, trying to get people interested in their thing. There's always some students who go around the room and they sign up for everything. You watch them. They're just signing up everything. They come to us. You give them, they say, we're in ministry. Yeah, they give them a sheet. They check every box. I want to do everything. And, and you're like, wow, this is so exciting and it's so great to see their passion and their love and all of this. And then about two weeks later, reality hits them and they realize, oh, I have to study too. And then you get a message from them saying, you know what, I think I overextended myself and I need to back up a little bit. And we say, we get it. It's okay. There is that passion in, in Peter that is, is, is so wonderful to see. And sometimes our problem is we're not passionate enough about Jesus. Peter is exuberant about Jesus. He makes these great declarations. And Jesus warns him, Peter, be careful. But he can't see it. Peter's response to Jesus when he says, talks to him about failure, Peter's response is, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. These these losers, yeah, they'll probably run from you, but I won't. I'll die for you. And when Peter says, I will die for you, I think what he's talking about is a hero's death. That blaze of glory where you go out and everyone 
They build statues about you and they write about you in all the history books. That's the kind of heroic death that I think Peter is looking for. That's probably why in the garden, when the soldiers come, all the others do nothing. Peter picks up a sword and says, let's go. Come on, let's do this. I'm ready. And he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus says to him, wait a minute. Peter, that's not what we're about. Because if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. I think Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is not going to progress through violence. The kingdom of God is not going to to expand by forcing people to follow me. But I wonder if also Jesus is saying to him, Peter, if you choose the sword, there's a good chance you will probably die by the sword. There's a good chance you will probably experience a heroic kind of death. But that's not what I want for you. What I want from you is not that kind of death. I want a willingness, a death from you that looks more like a cross. I want a death that that is connected to vulnerability, not power. That's connected to surrender. Actually, Peter, what I want from you is a death of yourself. I think Peter would say, that's not a problem for me. Until, until he's standing outside of Caiaphas' house. Again, you have to give him credit for being there. He's the only one, maybe John, who at least follows Jesus there. And you know, when we are encountering the kind of, of struggles of life that, that expose who we are, we often think those things are going to be, those are going to be catastrophic things. Great big things. Huge temptations. Huge struggles. And sometimes they are. But I think most of the time we're prepared for those things. We have steeled ourselves about those things. It's the small things that get us. It fascinates me that it's not Roman soldiers who confront Jesus. It's not the guard of the synagogue that confronts Jesus. It's two servant girls and some innocent bystanders. What could they possibly do to Peter? What kind of threat could they possibly pose to him? They're servant girls. And yet, Peter is caught. And I don't think Peter has any realization how much self-interest is in him until that moment. And it comes pouring out of him. I don't even know the man. Protecting himself. And I suspect that for most of us, We don't realize how much self-interest runs our life until we come face-to-face with the reality of it. Things that expose us, circumstances, conversations, experiences. And then we step back and say, wow, I had no idea that was in there. At the heart of self-interest is this mindset that says, I'm not really sure that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. So I need to kind of do my own thing, go my own way. In many respects, this is a, this is a, everybody has self-interest. Everyone wrestles with that. But there is this conflict, this conflicted, conflictedness within us that, well, 
other people might experience it. Everybody who's a follower of Jesus should experience it. I mean, Herod's full of self-interest, but you don't see him conflicted. And Pilate's full of self-interest. He's not conflicted. Caiaphas is full of self-interest. He's not conflicted, but Peter is. Peter sees it. That's why he goes out and he weeps bitterly because he realizes just how needy he is. How ugly his heart is. And this is not someone who is brand new to Jesus. This is someone who has been following Jesus. Like you and me. We continue to wrestle with self-interest. And we continue to need the solution to that, which is the cross. There's something about the cross that exposes our self-interest. That's why the cross is necessary, because we are so self-absorbed. We don't even realize where it's taking us. But the cross also is the means of atoning for our self-interest. It is the answer to our self-interest. It is the hope in the midst of our self-interest. And coming face-to-face with the cross can be a terrifying experience. It can be an extremely painfully revealing experience for us. But it can also be the greatest thing in the world because we begin to see who we are and how destructive our self-interested behavior is and our self-absorbed behavior is. And we come to realize how deeply we need Jesus. How much we need him. And we find that the cross... The revelation of who God is. We find at the cross that the power that he has to work in us. To turn us around and to change us. And and to continue to minimize our self-interest because he's filling us with himself. And turning our attention to him. Because he loves us. He wants what is best for us. That's his purpose. That's his will. That's his desire for us. It's just hard to see it sometimes. I think it's important to see this passage in Matthew 26 connected to the incident that Matthew describes in the 16th chapter of his gospel. In the 16th chapter, Jesus is meeting with his disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? They say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, some people Isaiah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And then he looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? And you know, first hand up, Peter. I know who you are. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are right. My father has revealed that to you. And then he looks at this man whose real name is Simon, it's his given name, and he says to him, you are Peter, which means rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there's all kinds of disagreement about what that means. The church has been, has been trying to figure that out, various theories through the centuries, and I don't really want to get into that debate. Because I think part of what Jesus is saying here is, Peter, you are are more than you think you are. 
And you get to chapter 26 and you say, Jesus, you were wrong. He's not. This is the guy on which you're going to build your church. This is the guy that you say is a rock. This guy who wilts in the presence of a couple of servant girls and a few innocent bystanders. This is the guy. Jesus says, yes, that's the guy. And I think, I I don't know the conversations that Jesus and Peter have after the resurrection. We, We get a little glimpse of that in John's gospel. But I am convinced that the conversations they have relate back to that. And Jesus says, you're still the rock. And he becomes what Jesus believes he can be in him. And I'm convinced that God has a word for you and me. Our failures don't define us. Our struggles don't have to define us because God has more for us. There is hope for us. There is joy and grace for us, not because of us, but because of the cross. And in the cross, as we surrender to him, we will find that his plans for us and his dreams for us are so much greater than any of us could ever have imagined. Because if he can build a church on someone like Peter, after what he does, he can build it on you and me after whatever we have done. That's the love of God. And I think it's imperative for us to know that we are beloved children of God. When we think we're doing it exactly right and when we know we're not. When we're succeeding and when we're failing, we are still beloved children of God. And he has great dreams for us. If we'll let him. Philip Yancey says that one of the hardest things for us to grasp and what we need to soak into us, maybe more than anything else, is to, is to believe with all of our being that there is nothing we can do that would make God love us more and nothing that we could do that could make God love us less. He may chastise us at times. He may convict us at times. That's because he loves us. Because he sees us moving to destruction and he wants to turn us around. Brennan Manning says this in a different way. You know, in the only the way that Brennan Manning can say it. He says, Jesus insisted that his father is crazy with love. That God is a kooky God who can scarcely bear to be without us. The parable that makes this truth so obvious is that of the prodigal son, or as they say in Scripture these days, the parable of the loving father. The emphasis is not on the son, on the sinfulness of the son, but on the generosity of the father. God's love for us is positively scandalous. And it is. It is. It's so scandalous that he would go to a cross for us. Not for people who deserve it, but for people who don't. You see it in Isaiah's prophecy. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's his love for us. And the conviction that we feel about our self-interest and the guilt and the shame that we feel about our self-interest is actually a gift from God. Because without it, we would just go our merry way, living ourselves in self-interest, not realizing that it was leading us to destruction. It makes me think of what Dickens writes about in A Christmas Carol. I assume you, you probably know that story, you've heard it, seen it. I think it's been made into movies and things almost 200 times. Our family favorite is the 1951 version. It stars Alistair Sim. When I was a child, my mother and my older sister and I would stay up because it was a late movie. You know, we only had three channels and PBS, you know, back in those days, in the old days. And, uh, and so we, the only way to watch it was to stay up. And so we would stay up at night. The two of them would always fall asleep, but I never did. I watched it all the way to the end. I love that movie. I love that version. And as a family now, we watch it every year. They've colorized it, but we watch it in black and white because that's better, you know, for that. And you know the story, the ghost of Christmas past, ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. They all come and they, they take him on this journey and he, they show him his own pain and the pain that he has caused others and the way that people think about him. And it's all pretty ugly and difficult. And you get to the ghost of Christmas future and he's showing him where all of this is leading and it's devastating to him. And, and then they, the ghost takes him to the churchyard. And this, this figure in a, in a black robe and cape over its head with no face visible. A bony finger spins around and points at one of the graves. And Scrooge clutching one of the other headstones says to him, Spirit, before I look upon that stone, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that must be? Or only the shadows of things that might be? And then he falls wailing on this stone with his name engraved in it. And he looks up and he says, I'm not the man I was. I'm not the man I was. And then something dawns on him and he says, why would you put me through all of this? If there was no hope. And it makes me wonder if one of the reasons why Peter's story is told here is that very reason. Because honestly, if I were writing this thing, I wouldn't put that in. The guy who's the most vocal for Jesus, the guy who's closest to Jesus, does this to him. I mean, you don't tell those kinds of stories. You sweep those under the rug. But you know, if we didn't have those kinds of stories, who would we possibly identify with? It's a word of hope to us that Peter, who so emphatically and with oaths and swearing says, I don't even know the man, truly becomes the rock who begins leading the church. 
And God has a vision for you and me. It's not rooted in our failures. It's rooted in the cross. Can we see it? One of the things I love about Ash Wednesday is when we kneel at the altar and the ashes are placed on our foreheads in the sign of the cross to remind us. And the words are said over us, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. And then... The words are repent and believe the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. This is good news. God is greater than our failures. And our failures don't have to define us. Jesus wants to define us. If we will let him. He can make us people we could have never dreamed possible. If we will let him. We're going to take a few moments of silent meditation. To listen to God. To speak to God. And after we have had a few moments to ponder ourselves. We will spend a few more moments praying for each other. Praying for the world. God hears our prayers when we pray. If you'd like to come and kneel at the altar rail, you're welcome to do that to join me. Father, thank you for the promise of your forgiveness and your grace for the cross. Through your loving grace, raise us up to be the people you have called us to be. May we live in that hope that we find in, in Christ. We pray not only for ourselves, but for each other, for this world. We pray for all who are grieving today, and particularly Bob Danner and his family.
May they know your comforting presence and strength in this time of death. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns. May your healing power be at work in each one of them. We thank you for the ministries of our church and we pray that you will, you will pour out your blessing upon the rapids. That the, these, these guys would, would know the joy of your grace. Protect them. Give them a wonderful summer. May each one of them grow deeper in you. We pray, Father, for churches around us today for the York's Corners Mennonite Church and Pastor Miller. May they know your grace and mercy in their worship and in their lives. We pray, Father, for the greater world around us, for the leaders of our government, that you would give them wisdom. We pray for all who are grieving tragedies and disasters and for refugees looking for safety and for peace in the midst of war. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that the, those in the Lilius Trotter Center have, for Don and Ben and Gail as they write this material that will be centered on praying for Muslims and those who work with Muslims during Ramadan. May this be a powerful witness. We pray, Father, for the persecuted church. We think, Father, even in our own country of the African-American churches who were, uh, fires were destroyed them this past week or so. We grieve with them. Help them as they rebuild. As the church bond together in that process. And even as we're hearing words of forgiveness, may that ring true for those who feels animosity and hatred toward them. And Father, we pray for the church in India, this great land that you love. We thank you for the work of the kingdom there, but we also know as elections are nearing and there is uncertainty and opposition and persecution, it's difficult for the church. May your people there know your strength every day. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us through the cross. And we offer our prayers in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.